Welcome to the True Voice Podcast with your host, LaShawn Smith. Hey, welcome to True Voice, where we learn more about today through stories from amazing people. This is season three. I'm your host, LaShawn Smith. Here on True Voice, we talk with people who have remarkable stories that entertain, teach, and offer a human perspective on how today's most pressing topics remain deeply connected to our past. I hope you enjoy today's episode. I'm joined today by Gayloid Sasan. Gayloid, welcome to True Voice. Thank you very much. I'm pleased to be here. We're going to have a fantastic conversation, excited about a number of points in your journey. To get started, we always like to go back early in the journey. And so one of my first questions is, you know, tell me a bit more about where you were born and raised. I was born in St. Louis, Missouri, though by the time I got to California, I was one years old and never did return except for visiting my grandparents and cousins. And that occurred in 1957, the first time, which is one of the things I will talk about because it's the theme in my book, Down the Road of Peace, that I have not yet published. I'm looking for an agent, and I'm in the process of that. That's great. And you moved around, I think, a little bit. Your, your father was in the Navy, I believe. You know, what was that like kind of moving around, meeting different people? Uh, my dad was in the military for, for a bit and, uh, you know, definitely gives you exposure to different places as you do kind of relocate. How was that for you growing up? It was fantastic. I lived and we moved from Missouri at that, that age and settled in San Diego. At the age of three, we moved to Hawaii and settled there till I was nine. Uh, Hawaii was fantastic. Today at 75, I hear about all the terrible things that were going with African-Americans, but I experienced none of that uh, because I was in the military, I was in an integrated community, and Hawaiians were very, very uh, accepting. They They brought us into their community, not only because we were us, but everybody. So there was white, black, Filipinos. Hawaii is quite a diverse state, especially Oahu, because of the military. And mm. that's where I lived. Lived on the beach, pleasant. The most memorable thing was I was sitting on the beach with my brother playing in the sand. A wave came and whoosh, took him out, disappeared completely. I'm only about four, so I'm not too sure what's going on. And I run and tell my mom, and she and the whole group come running to the beach because they've lost their son. And uh, I don't know how many ways later, but he was washed back and forth. Aboard, oh, my goodness. <laughs> in front of me, and and he was only he's a year younger than me. So wow. he, his attitude was, oh, that was fun. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Wow. So, he didn't even know kind of the gravity of the situation. That's that's wild. Know. But so you're in this, I mean, almost like a vacation state, right? Growing up, you know, with that type of environment. That's that's pretty fantastic. Any other kind of like highlight story, like time in Hawaii growing up that, you know, stays with you? Oh, there's several. One is when I got my tonsils out, they fed me vanilla ice cream. So that's today my favorite. But the Another one similar to my brother being washed out into the ocean is that my dad was teaching me how to swim and he had his hand under my belly 
and I'm just kicking and frailing, just having a wonderful time. And he puts me on the side, takes that James, the brother that was washing the ocean, and does the same thing. I got jealous and jumped in thinking I could swim, I could swim, and floated straight to the bottom, passed out while I was still underwater, remembering what last thing I saw was this white leg, which was the lifeguard I discovered later, rescuing me. And when I came back, came to, the first thing I saw was my mom sitting in, sitting in the back. I jumped up. I was probably four, five years old, and ran to her and just thrilled, saying, Mommy, did you see me swim? Did you see me swim? She never came to the swimming pool with us again. Oh, my God. You traumatized her. (laughs) (laughs) Those are childhood memories, yes. That's, uh, I don't know, that just sounds like a fantastic set of experiences. Now, as you uh, move through, you know, young adulthood, you know, what was the point where you started thinking, who am I? What am I going to be? Was this was this high school? Was this, you know, at, at what point did you really start to ask yourself, you know, who am I? I began in uh, probably the sixth grade asking myself, who am I? I have always until college been in a private Catholic school and the schools my parents put me in were very diverse. But and and they were nuns. And when all of a sudden, I think at six, I start becoming more aware of who I was as a male and the women, females that I was growing up with. And that include people that weren't black that I found attractive. And I noticed the nuns paid more attention to the blonde hair, blue people, blue eye people than they did the rest of us, Filipino or Japanese or Mexicans or Blacks. That's when I asked myself, who am I? And also, just a box of crayons. you think that would be no big deal. But I picked up this box and I'm coloring, and they had this color identified as skin color. It wasn't my skin color. And that really upset me quite a bit. I even, I mentioned it to the nuns, which they gave me, they didn't pay any attention to what I was saying, but still. So were you on this journey by yourself or was there someone you could talk to to be like, hey, something doesn't seem right here? Or are you kind of navigating this alone? I didn't think about talking about anybody else. Hmm. But what I did do was uh, I started writing I about it. I didn't keep a journal and I don't know what happened to the, what I wrote in those, those days, but... That was more or less the beginning of me just writing first to find out who I was. Yeah. What was uh, one of the big unlocks, you know, in those early writings, if you remember anything that, you know, you looked at something outside of the world or you look at something in yourself and you made a decision, I'm going to stand for this or I'm going to be a certain way. Anything is that, you know that sixth grader um, or around that age where you kind of made, you know, start making uh, decisions? I'm competitive, have been. Mm -hmm. And I felt I deserved to be what anybody else could be too, including, I'm not going to name his name because he's still around, the white boy that had blonde hair and blue eyes. Whatever the nuns said he could do, I knew I could do too. Mm-hmm. But I didn't really connect it to his skin color because I had other white friends 
who uh, the nuns ignored just as much, but they didn't have blonde hair or blue eyes. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I lived relatively a blissful life, uh, making decisions such as, do I want to be in the band? Do I want to play basketball? And I would say yes to, to playing basketball, <laughs> not the band. And, um, and just observing how I was being, how people reacted to me in high school. When I wanted to date, I noticed that if anyone wanted to connect me to someone, it was always a black woman. I had nothing against black black females because I grew up with them and I loved them, but I never thought that it was, I had to be limited only to one ethnicity. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I had to write about that. That's very religious as a Catholic. And I would send out Christmas cards. And this one white mother told me that she really appreciated the Christmas card that it was. And I had bought it from Catholic school. And she mentioned some of the Catholic images in the card. But she didn't think that I should continue talking to her daughter. And I knew why, but I just ignored it. And I talked to her anyway, because I only saw her at the bus stop. (laughs) Yeah, no, I I was saying uh, it's interesting, again, when we have those moments that in the moment sometimes don't seem to be super important. But when you look at it holistically, you can kind of see these steps along your journey. Yes, and that would include watching other Blacks and how they were dealing with unperceived, not segregation, but the unforeseen biases of the nuns in particular and the priests. And one of the, my friends in my class pulled the nun's habit off her head because the nun wanted to spank her hand and, and wash her mouth out because of her language. And, I, and so I saw how other blacks were resisting. I didn't know whether or not that, how that would affect me at the moment when I was witnessing it. But I kept that in my memory forever. We did, the authority didn't always have control over us. Yeah, that's important. I want to switch to another uh, young adult experience. I think you're about 13 years old uh, at the time. Correct me if I'm wrong. You have a vacation down south and uh, there's some harassment going on. Tell me what happened. So this is what my book is about, Down the Road of Peace. And yes, um, in my naivety there, (laughs) my parents took me and my siblings to visit our relatives in the Deep South. I didn't think of it as the Deep South, just St. Louis is our first stop. And seeing the the dichotomy between my mom's family and my father's family. My father's family is from Winona, Mississippi, and my mom's family, primarily Native American Cherokee and Black, but their culture was Native American. And they had been interacting with the French, this is what I learned later, are doing that trip before the Louisiana Territory occurred. And so therefore, their language, or my grandmother's language was, and I can't pronounce the, what it was, I have it written down, but it was a, a Cherokee dialect. 
and also uh, French. And they primarily talked amongst themselves in French. My grandfather grew up in a German-speaking community, black man, and uh, his first language was German. My mom talks about how he interacted with, they called him Papa Dick, which is Anheuser-Busch, founder who created the beer company. And he and my grandfather were close friends, speaking in German all the time. Mm-hmm. But at home, they only spoke English because they didn't want my mom and her siblings to struggle as becoming Americans as they Ah. Yes, yeah, so they don't want to struggle. Yeah. Yeah. So my grandfather did talk to me in German, and I learned a little bit before he died. He said he regretted, he told my mom, he regretted not teaching his kids his language, but he was going to teach his grandkids it. I got yeah. my brothers and I and my cousins got. Now, did he immigrate to, no. did your grandfather immigrate or where was he I don't living? No. So far from what I could find about my grandfather is that um, his family was escaped or was brought into a German speaking community in Missouri where blacks were freed and protected and guarded against the rest of the political society. And that's how he grew up in that. But I don't know much more about him than that. And those are just stories I got from listening to my great aunts and grandmothers. Yeah, that's fascinating. So those are some of the things top of mind. Let's get back to, you know, you're on this vacation where your your parents had kind of uh, exposed you to or looking to expose you to different things. What happened um, on this this trip to Memphis? And on the trip to Memphis, my cousin was so excited to show me Elvis Presley's mansion who I had okay. just heard on the radio saying that he didn't think niggas could do anything but shine his shoes. Mm. And so I wasn't too thrilled about going to his mansion, but my cousin, who probably didn't hear the story, was wanted me to do that. So long story short, we made it all the way to the mansion. I asked a few questions, and walking back, we had to run because he told because a gang of white boys for them were coming after us with knives, broken glass bottles, and what have you. I don't know, because I took off and I ran. And uh, in the story, I, I, I described how my cousin asked me, could I run? And I told him, oh, sure. And I told him about how I ran in track and how things were. I always came in second behind Bobby Spence and Jacob Jones, my best friend, came in third. So we could always guarantee those three positions on track. And he said, well, good, because you're going to have to run now. I said, why? He looked behind us. I turned around, and there's this game just gaining on us, just flying at us. And I said, what's going on? And I turned around, and he was gone, my cousin. He had already taken off. Once he told me I needed to. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) He took off. And I I was standing there. I was just totally shocked of 
what was going on. And finally, a guy got enough sense to pick speed and take off, jumped over these white people's fence, ran through their yard, jumped over the back fence, kept on going. These guys just stayed on my tail. They did the same thing going over the fence. And then way about four blocks down, I saw my cousin turn left. So I just took off and turned left. I could hear this guy behind me almost catch my shirt. As I was turning, he slipped and fell. And I just kept on going until I was back in my cousin's neighborhood where he and seven other guys were standing around with bats and whatever they needed that they were going to combat the white boys that were running after us. Wow. That, that was, is a crazy story. That was in Tennessee. Now, was there any impetus for why they said, these are the two people I'm going to go chase down? They just, the just ran. Boys? Yeah. yeah. They never got close enough to explain their motive. <laughs> <laughs> and I, like, I don't need to know the answer. I didn't stand around the interview there. Uh, right, right. Cousin, but my cousin said, those white folks won't come in this neighborhood because we won't let them and, they, and we don't go in their neighborhoods. Right. Now, what was your your family's kind of sentiment, either your, you know, your parents or, you know, aunts and uncles? How, how did they think about this type of things and, and what kind of, you know, behavior did they model that you, you know, you would pay attention to? Well, number one, I didn't tell my parents about that experience. Number two, my parents were, my mom was a staunch Catholic and my father had just discovered this new religion called the Baha'is, the Baha'i faith. And they believe what attracted him and and the arguments between him and my mom when when he was considering leaving the Catholic Church was he said, Well, they believe that all people are human, no matter what your color. Women and men have to be on equal terms and there's no dominance of of the species. And then he listed several others. Well those two really got my attention, but that's what why he mainly be, later on became a Baha'i, and uh, my parents would discuss everything, sex, name, name it for his kids to hear, including our choice of religion. And nine months before my mom died, she became a Baha'i. But so all that influenced how they reacted to the society we lived in and protect, did their best to protect us from even knowing much about what was going around us. So. Right. How did that particular event, uh, going back to that, you know, shape your life moving forward? I didn't have a chance to let it shape my life because the next day we jumped in the car and went to Mississippi. Hmm. And that was even more traumatic than what happened in Tennessee. Tell me more. Well, immediately as we were driving into the town and to my Aunt Myra's home, the white folks sitting on the porch and standing around noticed that my dad had a brand new Packard, 1957 Packard, and it was loaded with black folks. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we were very well welcomed in the community, by, especially by my aunt, who had been preparing for us to be there. And um, we spent, uh, we must have arrived like on a Monday, so we are, yeah, so we went to church. I don't remember going to church Sunday, but we probably did because that's what we always do. But we spent the whole week in Winona, Mississippi at my Aunt Myra's house. 
learning all about the culture and the people and her lifestyle and uh, what she did. She had the store next door. She also brought in washing. So she, we helped her wash the neighbors, the white folks' clothes. And, and she had a farm with uh, chickens and, and she grew vegetables and it was just huge. So we helped her there. And then that, that Sunday, we went to church, a white church. The priest had already come to our house to let us know that we were welcome to be there. So we went to church, and there must have been at least, um, there was not a big church. So 20 people were in there, all white, and we were the only black family. And normally, we sit almost close to the front. We didn't pay attention about segregation, and that's where we sat, in, near the front. When we left church, there must have been at least 150, maybe more people standing outside. And uh, the first thought I had and mentioned to my brother that I didn't think all these people could get into that little church, thinking they were coming there for the next mass. And mm -hmm. they watched us walk to our car and go home. And the following week was similar to the previous one as far as interacting with my cousins, who one of the things we did was we went to uh, the movies. We were invited to go to the movies. I asked my cousin, could we sit up in the balcony? She looked at me like, you, 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 you must be kidding me. Where else are we going to sit? But that was just her look. She didn't say that. And uh, at home in San Diego, all the cool kids sat up in the balcony. But because my mom would go, always go to the movies with us, she would not allow us to go up there. So I was looking forward to it. Well, mm -hmm. up in the balcony... The balcony had a slope of probably 60%, so he's sliding down on these metal chairs up to the front. I had other black folks in there, and uh, we saw a movie called you, The Girl Can't Help It. But while we were settling down, number one, my brother Michael wanted to go to the bathroom, and there was only one. And when he went, a woman came out, and he didn't want to go in there because he thought it was only for, for girls. And then everybody wanted to go downstairs because the seats down there looks more plush, and they were red carpeted. And I, my cousin said, no, you can't go down there. I already got the tickets for here, and this is where you're going to be. And so we stayed there, enjoyed the movie, and left. Something I left out real quick. Uh, on the way to the movie house, we passed this house that had ripe pears just loaded. The branches were almost down to the ground. And so my brother James thought it was a great idea for us to go in there and pick pears and eat them on the way to the movies. Well, my cousin was quite, she had she was way ahead and didn't see it us gather all these pairs and then came back and balled us out for going in there without asking permission. A white lady did look out the window, but she didn't say anything. And then we went to the movies. On the way back home from the movie, they, we were going in that direction. My cousin decided we needed to find a different route because of all the crowd that was way up there by that house. So we mm. went in different directions and went home. And that's where she told me that... Um, I was out of place, that I needed to know my place. And I told her, well, this California is my place. And she said, well, you need to go back to California because it isn't like that here. Uh, one of the conversations I had with her was about voting. And I told her how my parents had voted for Eisenhower. 
And um, she says she'd never heard of voting and that her parents had never voted and she didn't know anything about voting. I must be either kidding her or talking about some California uh, thing that they never some California stuff. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But it wasn't her. It wasn't her and her experience in Winona, Mississippi of having. And then when you brought that up, what what do you think was the reason she it's well, from how you're describing it, she kind of dismissed it as even when she heard it, it still wasn't for her. But why, why do you think that mentality took hold? At the time, I had no idea. I just thought she was having a poor education. <laughs> now, of course, I, re- I know the history behind the whole area. And uh, mm-hmm. it's actually uh, in the conclusion of my book, I, my dad explained the events that we had, that we experienced, which I haven't gotten to all that too yet. But so I think that answer will come with me telling you more about the trip in Mississippi, whereas in the next Sunday, or actually the Saturday before the next Sunday, my parents had put us to bed and I woke up with all this noise outside. And my dad had already warned us not to get out of bed, so I crawled over to the front door, which was slightly ajar, and I could see my mom and my aunt standing on the porch holding each other. I could see several dozens of people with torches, some in uh, white garbs, uh, maybe six or seven of them were fully dressed with the hoods. And a black man, which I didn't recognize to be my father immediately, was on the ground kneeling in front of this preacher who had a Bible and uh, was quoting the Bible to him and to the audience and berating him for having gone to that white Catholic church and also warning him to control his kids about going into people's yards and picking fruit without permission. And I, he didn't add that part, but he just picking fruit. And I, I go in the, the I use the vernacular, the, they call it eubonics, but it is, and I call it just another uh, dialect of the people in, in that time. I use that in my writing, in the dialogue of my book. Mm-hmm. So you can hear exactly what the preacher said to my dad and how he reacted. So anyway, so you want to know how that affected me and my family. Basically, I was totally, immediately, I was totally upset with my dad because he was an actor. He uh, was a leader in the community. He had had an elected office uh, commissioner in San Diego. He was well known. I got to the point that no matter where I went in San Diego, regardless of what community I was. People knew my dad. They knew him. He also was, um, Hugh Brenner was one of his friends in Los Angeles. Uh, the theater and movies and all that was a, was a part of my family because my aunt and cousins were in some aspect of producing movies and stuff like that. 
So, you know, I lived in an integrated society more or less because of that. So I was very upset with my dad for not standing up for himself, telling these people who he really was. And I, I carried this torch for just about the rest of our stay, which was another week in Mississippi. Well, the day after the clan let my dad go back in the house and they left, and they left to burn that church down. They mentioned that as they were leaving. That was their purpose. So they and went to go burn down the white church because white church you guys had been inside. In there. And also threatening my dad that if he brought us back to a white church, what they were going to do with him. So, of course, we went completely out of town, went to Greenwood and went to that church. And then the, night, the following night, my mom had a miscarriage. I rode with her and my dad to the clinic. My dad got out of the car to go in and get a wheelchair for my mom and came back all pissed off because they said they weren't going to serve him no matter what my mom was going through. So we, wow. he jumped in the car. My mom is bleeding all over me. I'm holding her. She's sweating hot and, and moaning, and I've never seen her in that situation. And we made it all the way to Greenwood again. We had gone to church earlier the day before, and now we're back at Greenwood and going to the hospital there where they did care for her. She did lose the baby, and, they had to, and she had to stay there. While she was there, instead of um, my siblings and myself staying with my Aunt Myra, we stayed at my great cousin's home with her son and husband and helped with milking the cows, slopping the pigs, riding horses, and including picking watermelon. They had a watermelon field. And when my parents came back from the hospital, Two days later, because that's how long we stayed with my cousin, we took the watermelons to the market and sold them to this man that looked like, sound like, and I thought for sure was the same man that was uh, had berated my father and dressed all in the clan's out outfit. But I couldn't tell because I hadn't seen his face, but his voice, his body, everything else. And hmm. my dad stayed relatively submissive when he was around this man. My cousin dealt with him, sold him the watermelon, and then we went home. Well, I, was, I had, not, had not told my dad how I was feeling about him, but after we sold the watermelon, instead of going immediately back to my cousin's house with, my, with his cousin, my great cousin, he decided he wanted to take me around and show me where he used to pick cotton. And while he did that, he gave me a driving lesson so that I could help him drive on the way back to California when we left. I still kept it to myself, my feelings, until we were on our way home. And I was driving, and I got scared to death by the diesel truck passing our car and I kept turning the wheel as if I was going to turn into the truck. My dad was taking a nap and I screamed and he helped me stay on the road 
And after the truck had passed and I screamed at him and told him how in the world could he ever help me? And then it told him what I had witnessed. Not only, and then my brother James, who I did not know had also witnessed it. And so we both uh, laid into my parents for not having explained what was going on. We mm. went to a restaurant and they sat us down and he explained that the grand dragon of the Ku Klux Klan that was berating him then was a childhood friend of his that he had grown up with, had picked cotton with, had spent time with, had experienced watching a hanging with. And wow. That, and that that man was doing his best to protect my dad at that time when the community came and they probably really came to hang him, but he protected him. No matter what he said to my dad, that's what his real purpose was. So I found out. Well, that changed things. That more or less strengthened who, why my dad became a Baha'i because a person that wasn't black was treating him like a human being in the best way that he knew how in that community. Hmm. Wow. That's, um, I mean, the evolution and the arc of that is fascinating, right? We don't have all of the context of the story, so we see it one way, and really there's a whole subtext there that's really going on. Right. So you get back to Hawaii, right? You, you know, oh, life we go back getting... to California. Oh, okay. All right. So you get back to San Diego. San Diego. Um, yeah. And uh, at this point, I mean, this is a real vacation, right? You had some moments. <laughs> I had point. some moments. And when I tried to tell my friends, they had no concept of what I was trying to tell them. They didn't understand the gravity of it. They did not. And mm -hmm. San Diego was, uh, as I, I didn't know at the time, but San Diego was controlled by the Republican Party, the Klan. And um, I finished high school, joined the Navy, that was an experience dealing with um, people from the Deep South, white people from the Deep South. Who were on active duty? Who were on active duty. Uh, went to uh, radio school, brought my friends home because uh, San Diego boot camp was in San Diego. So on, when we got a chance, where did I go? Got the yeah. bus and went home. And I would bring my friends with me. And they were all other ethnicities besides African-Americans. So we had a lot, but that's the way I grew up. And we were stationed in Hawaii again. And in Hawaii, I found this magazine with a poster of the Grand Dragon of the Ku Klux Klan. So I thought, oh, this is interesting. And by the way, at this point, I was still studying about the Baha'is because it was interesting. Mm -hmm. And so I was looking at everybody being just human and so I put this poster in my locker door so that every time you open it, you could see it. And it was on the wa uh, hallway of the barracks. And so these guys from Tennessee, Mississippi, Alabama, and any place in the deep South white guys had a fit because I had his poster. And I <laughs> said, well, I have to see what he looks like so I don't have to walk up to him with my hand out to shake this guy's hand, knowing that just because of the color of my skin, he tested me. And then we would talk about that. And I would give him some of the books that I had been reading about the Baha'i faith. 
but I didn't really associate with them. I had other friends that I associated with. And uh, one day this white guy came up to me and said, hey, Sasan, I'm getting ready to go back home to visit my parents. And uh, I live in Tennessee and my dad is uh, a member of the Ku Klux Klan. But I've been reading your books and I, I really agree with the points that it's making. But I don't know what to do when I get home. So I thought for a minute and I said, well, you know, I was always raised to honor your parents, your father and your mother, but that doesn't mean you have to copy what they do. And he left. I always wonder his outcome and how he did that. But since he read my books, I'm sure he continued his uh, investigation. Yeah. Wow, that's uh, that's just fascinating. So you're going through these different stages. You you get out of the Navy. You go to college. Uh, you got multiple multiple degrees, correct? I do. But uh, before we leave the Navy, I do want to tell you about. I was listening. I, I saw these white guys in. Well, actually, I was their supervisor, and I went in to see if they were doing their work, and they were listening to Bob Dylan, and mm-hmm. they told me that I should not be in there listening to Bob Dylan because they didn't want me to know what he had he was saying so I shoot <laughs> now what was about bob dylan's message they were afraid that you would get a hold of oh i didn't i didn't stay there to listen but now that i know bob dylan i can imagine what they were mad, what they were listening to and definitely didn't want me or any black person to know about and probably were very upset about it another time when i was stationed in pearl harbor and i had a crew working for me a person just one rank higher than me told me he needed my crew and that i was to do the work by myself and i did that for three days and then i just i had to go to the doctor because it was so oppressing and i'd never experienced this before and he told me that i needed to tell my the officer on duty about it, who was a black chief. And I told him and he said, well, I was wondering when you were going to come in here and and tell me about this. In other words, he observed what was going on, but he wasn't going to say anything until I had something to say. Since the experience Mm -hmm. was all new to me, I didn't know what to say. I was following direction. I was, I know the man outranked me. So I I knew he had the authority to take my crew. And so, so then I left the Navy after spending some time aboard ship and went to college immediately. I don't know what to tell you about college. It has, college is so opening education. I was becoming really educated. Right. I mean, self, the self-awareness as well, right? Right. A lot of black students, male especially, used to hang out in the, in the uh, cafeteria and play cards while I was sitting at the other end reading, studying, and I had decided to become a, a pre-med student. Pre-med as your, your placeholder major while you were figuring things out. Right. Pre-med was my placeholder, definitely. So a lot of math. Every math class I could take, even classes I knew I would get an A in because they were so so basic, all the way to calculus and science classes. 
but I also have to take, have to take humanity classes that's in art and history. I'm leading up to why I have more than one degree. <laughs> one of my first history class, the teacher gave us this book called The Strange Career of Jim Crow. Hmm. Well, I never heard of Jim Crow. Who is this man? And why do I have to know about his career? Is the first thought I had. Mm-hmm. And then as I was reading the book, I couldn't identify with what the author was trying to tell me about this man named Jim Crow. So I didn't get any much out of it. I just wrote up a real cursive couple of paragraphs about what the book was about and turned it in. And that was that. But it stuck with me. And then the other stories that I had were books that the professors would give us. And then in my junior years of college, because I had been on the dean's list for the last past two years, the dean called me in the office and told me he had not, he noticed that I had not applied for any of the med schools. And I definitely qualified. Well, I told him the truth. <laughs> Didn't like blood. <laughs> <laughs> it bothered me a lot and that I, uh, and then why I had taken those classes. So he kicked me out of his office telling me he didn't want to see me back in there until I had come up with uh, a plan of action. Mm-hmm. Well, while I was walking from his office, uh, I saw this friend of mine and he doesn't speak English that well. So we, we were conversing in Spanish and this other doctor professor at the college was listening to me talk and asked me, how did I learn how to Spanish? And I told him, and he, he asked me in Spanish that question. And I told him that I learned it on the streets growing up with all my friends. That's mm-hmm. how I learned it. And that I had taken a couple of classes. We, well, in school, in high school, you had to take two years of Latin. And Latin was so close to Spanish that we were given a choice to take another two years or to take a... Spanish. So I jumped into Spanish. So I learned how to read and write Spanish too that way. Mm-hmm. So he asked me to, to join a program he had designed for teachers. So I considered it and went to his office and he showed me that with all the studies and all the classes I had, I could take the few more classes that would give me my teaching credentials and also a degree in history and science, physical science and in education. So I graduated with those three degrees. Wow. Now, what city were you in uh, for college? San Diego. You're in San Diego. And uh, did you just the social circle as you started to kind of expand your your mental horizon on, on all these things? Did you start to see your environment or the city any differently during or post-college? During college, we were having some demonstrations downtown San Diego with Bank of America. Mm -hmm. I was working for some close friends of my father who had a shoe store, a Jewish family. And uh, so I would have to pass the bank to go to work. Several of my friends that I grew up with, black friends that I grew up with, were marching asked me to join, and I told him I would when I come back from work. Mm-hmm. In the meantime, while I was at work, my friend came in. She needed to use the bathroom because they, they had dropped feces and peace and urine 
on the marcher and she had been hit. Mm. And I go, whoa, wow, this is serious. Mm-hmm. And the owner of the shoe store, not at the same time, but at another time, showed me the the, um, the numbers on his uh, skin that the Nazis had put there because he had been in the camp. So all this was just coming together. Of course, they weren't teaching us anything like this about anything about this in the history classes that I was taking. Right. So I was getting it from from the witnesses that had been there, him. Mm-hmm. Which is the source. And, yeah. So I started really, well, I was more interested in creating income. <laughs> so I started an imported business instead of marching. <laughs> and I import goods from Mexico and sell them to uh, students on the campus myself my business included a staff of everybody in my family (laughs) all my brothers who also were going to college Mm -hmm. and they would sell these items on their campuses we weren't all going to the same place and then our business morphed into a battle of the band where we hired bands and people would pay to come and dance and listen to the bands and that kind of income is what put us through college How many brothers did you have? Five. Okay. No sisters. All right. And um, I also rented a three-bedroom house, and I charged my classmates who lived in the other two bedrooms enough of the rent to pay my rent as well and the utilities. So that, that helped take care of expenses for me, too. And it was opening my mind to businesses, to business. Mm-hmm. I had business experience working with my dad with Fuller Brush and my grandfather on his father, that is, had a trucking business in Missouri. And my grandfather on my mom's side had a butcher business. So I had a feel as a child for business. And then, so that's, I thought I would do that too. Where was I going to go with that? So you have these options, right? So you're thinking about these different things. You you know, you got, you see this activism taking place. You're over here trying to grow your business so you can eat and pay for college. Where does it come to a head where you say, hey, I'm going to do something different? In my cracks of time, when I could walk protest with my friends, that's what I did. Mm -hmm. And then I started teaching elementary school and going to classes in the evening because they, I was encouraged to do that to get my master's degree and they wanted me to become a principal. And in the middle of that, I decided that who was making this decision? It wasn't me. It was these these uh, professors at the college. They wanted me to go into the administration. I didn't. I wanted to be with the kids. And so in 1980, I took a bicycle ride from Vancouver, Canada to San Francisco. And um, this was during the time when the Klan had killed this Ethiopian man in Oregon. So I was a little apprehensive, but the ride went great. I met some other men who were studying computer science, computer was everybody was interested in that, that was awake of what was going on at that time. And I, w- I got my master's in uh, computer science at mm-hmm. Sacramento State. So we started a business in Canada 
that was an eye opener when some of the uh, other businesses that we interacted with would mention that though they had never met me, they could tell by my voice that I was a black man. Hmm. And then we weathered for a year and then I told them that we couldn't bring in the type of profit that we needed to support ourselves that uh, I was going to sell my shares and leave. Mm-hmm. And so we were during that time, I discovered that they had no positive thing to say about the indigenous people there, the native Americans there. Mm-hmm. They would, they talked about how uh, they they were just racist. Bottom line, I don't remember. Mm-hmm. And so that also encouraged me that to disassociate myself with them. Hmm. So I came back to Cal. I came back, moved to Seattle, met my wife, and here I am. Actually, I'm not here. I am because I've been active. I write poetry. I. I've been, I'm a being arts commissioner. I am uh, a co-chairman of the African-American Writers Alliance. So within those titles, I am very active within my community. Mm-hmm. Tell me more during this journey, right? We have these moments. Some of us pay attention to them. Others don't. But you were paying attention along your journey. You know, you started writing. Uh, you started to just embrace, you know, all these these steps along the journey. Two things I wanted to hit on before we we wrap up. One, why was writing kind of the outlet for you to kind of bring all this together? And then I also want to make sure we touch on some of the work you've done to learn more about your lineage. Initially, the writing was only for me. I only wanted to know who I was and what was going on. And I would record what I was feeling and thinking And I kept the journal to myself until my girlfriend opened it up and decided to read it on her own. And I don't know how long she was doing that until one day she asked me why, uh, what was it? She asked me a question about something I had said about her in the journal. And I had no intention for her to know how I was feeling about that. Hmm. And so I answered her question, told her that she misread the comment. I just wish I could remember exactly what it was, but I don't. Anyway, at the moment. Anyway, um, I started writing poems. And I would allow my friends to, I would read some of them to my friends and allow them to hear it. And I wrote this poem called Controlling the Dams, influenced by my experience in Canada. And... um, yeah, it wasn't influenced by Canada. This is before the, this is when the business, Canadian business, was just getting started. So I left the poem with a friend of mine, and I had mailed it out to quite a few other people all over the, anybody that I thought was interested. Came back to Sacramento to visit, and they gave me this paper called The Poet, and it had published my poem. Hmm. And I go, wow. I'm published. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so since then, I've been writing poems to be published. And uh, and I still write in my journal. I still have the journal from 1965. Wow. 
right up above me in my on the show. Mm-hmm. And it has a lot of poetry that has never been published, and some of it I will. Now, my, my journey to become to learning my heritage, uh, that was part of me journaling as well. And um, I start off with my college experience about learning American history, of course, and talking to my parents, my dad in particular, but definitely both of them, ethnicity. And my dad wrote a lot of this information down that I still have about how his people escaped slavery and joined the Choctaw. And that's basically why his family identified with Choctaw in Florida and Mississippi. I already knew more, a lot about my mom's side of the family by that time. Continuing my studies, I discovered that the last name Sasan, and I'm not going to go through all the different trips that I had to find that name, find the, the origins of it, which I really haven't found the real origins, but still, it, went, it reached all the way back to Morocco. Hmm. And along the northern coast of Africa, you can find it or or names similar to it that's related to it, like Vidal Sassoon, I learned, and I'll tell you how I learned, that is related to the Sassans. Interesting. Okay. A woman uh, named Alicia German wrote a book called, Oh, Alicia. Anyway, she's Jewish and survived the Polish uh, invasion with the Germans as a child and wrote a book about it. My wife and I read it. We talked to her about it. We were living here in, in, in Seattle. She lived in Los Angeles. We had a business that would bring us to Los Angeles. So she invited us over for pancakes at her house and pulled out her uh, genealogy book and showed me that she was related to me as a Sasan. Hmm. And that her family had been in Morocco in the north. She traced the northern ports of Africa. And that's how I had got a connection of how my last name was actually uh, influenced by the Berbers of North Africa. Wow. And so, of course, I now Kathleen and myself were headed for the continent. We've been studying and listening to radio broadcasts and studying the history of the continent, uh, all of the different states there and prior to when they were states. And they became states due to the invasions of the European. And we are still listening to contemporary uh, commentaries about what they're going to do. The last person I heard today was Dr. John Henry Clark. If you don't know who he is, he's a very important person to know. I do not know him. Give me, uh, what should I go look up? Well, let me tell you real quick. Look up Sankofa, that's S-A-N-K-O-F-A, Pan-African series with Professor, I'll spell her name, O-L-U-F-U-N-K-E, and her last name is O-K-O-M-E. So that's an important person, but that wasn't her. Her name is O-Y-I-N-S-A-N. That's her last name. Her first name is B-U-N. 
and I. And I refuse to say their name because I'm too American. <laughs> right. Well, I'll go dig up those and we'll make sure we get the uh, links in the show notes so other folks can uh, access that as well. Right. It's important. Yeah, that, that's fantastic. I mean, I just love that uh, you've connected the dots. Uh, a couple things on those journey that just personally I wanted to have a callback to. One, you know, I was you know, also in the Navy. I was stationed for a while in, uh, in the San Diego area, a base called uh, Naval Air Station North Island, NASNY. I'm sure you, you're, you're familiar with it. And, you know, one of my experiences uh, was there as a very young adult and then, you know, visiting later how much of the area I kind of ignored, right? I was just in my little world and I didn't really look at the the, the full, yeah, I think uh, just uh, pros and cons that were going on. And then, you know, as you've moved to these different places, I guess the question is, have you ever revisited one of the places you've lived and uh, you see it differently, you know, once you have a more mature set of eyes? I definitely have visited several of the places I live, including where I lived in Hawaii. Mm-hmm. Where I lived in Hawaii, we lived in Quonset Hut. And the only thing between our Quonset Hut and the beach were palm trees. <laughs> mm. Yes. And um, so when I took my wife there two years ago, what's there now is a warehouse that houses these giant tractors and lifts that build skyscrapers and where my house was. And then there's a trench that they had built. And on the other side of the trench is some kind of a chemical factory where the waste is put into the trench that goes into the ocean. Hmm. And then where the sugarcane field was is a solar panel uh, farm. Totally different. So, yeah, things are different. San Diego has changed as drastically as that as well. Yeah. I mean, both the facade and sometimes even the the values of the area, you know, starts to shift as well. I want to touch on, you know, your your company. It's interesting. Most of my professional career has been in technology and software development. I find it interesting, your intersection between education and, you know, you used all those math classes uh, from pre-med. I'm sure they helped out, you know, in grad school as a computer science major. The intersection of, you know, understanding ourselves, the philosophy, the, you know, all the thinking parts of uh, who we are and why we're here. And then all the quantitative things that you've learned, uh, I'm sure, you know, how does your brain reconcile those? You know, is there any interesting insight or anything special that you've come to kind of observe looking at both the human parts of our existence and all these systems and other types of things that obviously you're very educated and, and understand? Well, I'm going to start from the top. And that is right now, I think every Black person, I only mean obviously black, but I'm talking about those in Australia as well. Those in the Easter Islands are any place in the world, mm-hmm. including the people in India who are related to the continent of Africa, needs to learn what the Africans today are saying about the Europeans and colonization and religion, especially and how that has taken our 
innate culture that we've had before we were even aware that we were human beings. Mm-hmm. But we've always known we were human beings. And, yeah. you know, the Europeans just recently discovered that, <laughs> that they were <laughs> even human beings. We need, not to, we need to keep our eyes on who we are and communicate better than we have in the past. Yeah, no, that, that, that's a powerful point. And then as we're wrapping up, I wanted to hear your thoughts, you know, as you think of the values and, and how you practice Baha'i faith, what are some of the, you know, the top one, two or three things that, you know, if you're giving advice to someone who's finding their way in life, that, you know, you think we need to pay more attention to or invest more heavily in, you know, within ourselves to make this world a better place. In studying for the Baha'i faith, my father had me re- research all the other religions, as many of the, as he would just pile on my desk and study them and learn them as if I was going to be in those religions. I'm a scientist. And as a Baha'i, the Baha'is believe that science and religion must go together and balance. Many of the Baha'is that I have met are lean more to the mystic side of religion than they do to the scientific side. And I don't. Several of my siblings are Baha'is. Mm-hmm. And we, the Baha'i, open up conversation for you for discussion, and often I find myself arguing with my siblings and the Baha'is of the community that I live in, making sure that they pay attention to the science side of the religion. Yeah, and that's like, I think, an interesting kind of culmination to many steps in your journey that you do have a unique perspective on that balance. So, So that's great to kind of hear, um, you know, a portion of your story today. As you look forward, I know you're working on on the book. Uh, hopefully uh, it'll be out soon and folks can uh, read about your story in more depth. Um, what would you leave us with? Uh, any last moments of advice or thoughts that are top of mind? I would leave you with uh, the vision of economic independence for yourself. And it's not that difficult. First, as far as investments are concerned, find a, a company that would be your fiduciary, like Vanguard. Mm-hmm. Second, organize your finances so that, number one, you have an account for your, for, it's called car, an account that's called house, account that's called entertainment, one for food, one for children going to school, and you have several accounts and you put small amounts of money if you only have small amounts of money in each of them. And the entertainment one is the only account you use for entertainment, nothing else. If mm-hmm. you run out of it, you run out of it, but you still have food and everything else. For the car account, that has all the money in it for your gasoline and purchase of a new car in the future. And you don't intermix any of these accounts. It's important that we become financially literate Mm -hmm. and go to Vanguard for some books on uh, learning how to do that.
Or you can contact me. I got a whole list. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. And then, you know, what do you think is the unlock? I mean, I agree with that advice. What, what do you think is the unlock that, you know, that provides people when they do find that financial independence? They lose the myth that they have to have a job. Mm-hmm. They can create their own if they wish. The, I travel to my goal, my wife. My goal is to go to every continent on the planet at least once and visit a, a country there, including Antarctica. We're trying to go with National Geographic. Mm-hmm. Travel is one of the best ways to educate yourself. Yep, definitely. And my theme from the very beginning of meeting you to this end is to educate yourself. Fantastic. Well, Gayloid, this was a great conversation. Anywhere online that folks can find you if they want to hear more about your story or follow up on the status of anything that you're writing? Uh, they can contact, they can follow my blog on the African American Writers Alliance. Um, I have to, um, aawa-seattle.org. And then you have to have the WWs and the HTTPS in front of it, of course, but. We'll put the link in there to make it easy for folks, but that's perfect. Yeah. Well, thanks again for joining us and sharing your story. I appreciate it. Thank you. And thanks everyone who's joined us with our conversation today with Gayloid Sisson. Hope you enjoyed your time. As always, leave a great review wherever you listen to our show. I'm LaShawn. Thanks again. And remember, Dream big, stay curious, and always share your true voice. See you next time. This is True Voice.